Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the dervish poets of medieval Turkey and how they allow us to think about the concept of vernacular Islam. While the Quran, of course, was revealed in Arabic, across most of the Muslim world, and for most of Muslim history, only a small minority of Muslims have actually been able to understand, let alone read, written Arabic. For this reason, over the past thousand years especially, a whole series of vernacular Muslim literatures developed. And in the earliest cases, many of these first Muslim writers of vernacular literatures, whether Turkish or Urdu, Malay or Bengali, were Sufis, otherwise known as dervishes or sometimes abdals. In this episode, we're going to be following the teachings and the poetry of one of the most influential of these medieval mystical dervishes. His name was Kaigusus Abdal and he lived between the late 14th and the mid-15th century in Anatolia, the region that's now Turkey. His Turkish poems, and we'll be hearing some of them in the Turkish original as well as in an English translation, brought the profound mystical doctrines of figures like Ibn al-Arabi, the great medieval Sufi master, to the ordinary peasants and tribespeople who lived across medieval Anatolia, and indeed, by this period in the Balkan regions of southeastern Europe. Helping us to understand the life and times, the teachings and poems of Kaigusus Abdal is Zeynep Okte Uslu, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Turkish Language and Literature at Boazici University in Istanbul. She's the translator and editor of the Mesneviye Babakus Kaigusus which was published by the Harvard University Department of Near Eastern Language and Literatures in 2013. Hello, Zena. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Thank you for having me. Well, in this episode, we're going to be traveling to the medieval period, a time of nomads and tribesmen, of Sufis and sultans. And we're going to be examining how elevated metaphysical ideas about who we are as humans and how we relate to our divine creator were communicated in vernacular poetry that ordinary people could understand. And we'll be looking especially at the role of wandering Sufis or dervishes as spiritual and moral teachers. And we'll be seeing in particular how a Turkish vernacular tradition of Islam took shape in the medieval centuries and then was passed down to survive and still flourish in the present day. And more generally, thematically, I suppose, we're going to be talking about how religion and language, particularly languages other than the Arabic of the Quran, became important vehicles of teaching among ordinary Muslims. So let me start off then, Zainab, by 
asking you to explain what we might mean when we speak of a vernacular Islamic tradition. The term vernacular is, um, is about language. It's what to understand vernacular, we have to think about it in terms of its opposite, which is the word cosmopolitan. A vernacular language is, we can say the native tongue, uh, in, in contrast to the cosmopolitan, which is the language of learning. So vernacular is informal, immediate, and local. It is a, an everyday or order of culture. And it develops in person-to-person -person interaction and is learned that way and is per per per perpetuated that way. Um, so when we're saying vernacular Islamic tradition, as you just mentioned, we're speaking about an Islamic tradition that takes place or takes shape in a language other than Arabic. And maybe we can add that Persian to that too, which becomes cosmopolitan uh, in its, in its uh, journey. And so uh, in addition to Turkish, we can think of languages like Tatar and Urdu. Um, what happens here is that um, these languages be in becoming vernacular are actually becoming written down. So an oral idiom and a spoken language takes as its model the cosmopolitan or the high, highly literate, high culture language and, and creates its own written uh, tradition based on that language. And that's what we call vernacularization. Um, and of course, the vernacular Islamic tradition together with that comes with its own localized beliefs and customs and practices. And, and thus is closely related to quite a certain current debates about the plurality of Islam or are there several Islams or can we think about the core of Islam and what would that be and how removed would, would be from that when we are practicing Islam in another language. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because as you're suggesting already, we've, we're, we're talking about something that might seem in a way arcane or trivial or academic language and cosmopolitan vernacular, but it actually brings us to really, really core questions about the nature of Islam, or as you said, Islams, are the, are the various Islams? And indeed, if there are, how do they come about? What role does language play in that? And indeed, what unites these different Islams? Is it, for example, in some sense, the the Arabic script or indeed a core set of ideas that are communicated through Arabic and perhaps trickle down, get translated, get reinterpreted through these different languages, or maybe in a sense become other Islam through, through I guess, a, what, a process of exchange, dialogue, I don't quite know what the word might be, with the existing perhaps cultural heritage of different peoples, whether peoples in medieval Turkey or, or Anatolia, what we're going to look at, or indeed other places that you've mentioned, for example, with, with Urdu in the, the regions that now India or, or Pakistan. So as our case study then is we're going to move away from these kind of abstractions, aren't we? We're going to look at a particular case study of a language and, and poetry and people and indeed mystical teachings in that language. As our case study, we're going to turn to medieval Anatolia, the region that we now call Turkey. And as we do that, perhaps you can set the scene for us of the time and the place where this particular Turkish vernacular Islamic tradition first took shape. So Anatolia is actually a latecomer to the Islamic realm. 
it only became part of uh, the Muslim world in the late 11th century. And while the conquest of Anatolia was swift, the Islamization of Anatolia was a very slow process. Um, it's not, it wasn't until 12th or the 12th or 13th century that we could see any sort of literary production or any sort of works in Arabic and Persian and, and any sort of Islamic um, landscape such as mosques and other practices. So within this, uh, within this landscape, the, um, the urban centers became Islamized more quickly, but the, mo the moment you moved out from there, the, the um, rural areas remained largely Greek or Armenian or multicultural. And one aspect of that, that multiculturality was, of course, um, the Turkmens, the, the Turks who moved to Anatolia with the Seljuk conquest. Now, in the, 14th, in the early 14th century, the Ilhanid power, the power of the Mongols on Anatolia, became to, uh, began to collapse. And it collapsed definitively in 1335. In this period, in, in place of this, uh, this authority, rose small principalities, princes, we can say, but who were more like magnates and warlords. And it, so the whole Anatolian landscape consisted of these small um, principalities. Now, the important thing about these principalities were, were, was that the princes were Turkish and many of them didn't speak Arabic or Persian, and they and they came from nomadic origins. So, they, but they because they acquired this new authority and this new political power, they needed some some sort of legitimation, and that came through uh, connection to the Persian Islamic heritage. So, what happened was there was a need to translate these or these written languages, the, the literary production and the, the scientific production in these languages into Turkish. Primar first of all, for the education of the princes themselves, but also for their public and for the, the, the, their larger um, aim of, of, Islam, of propagating Islam and their Turkic uh, culture. That was one aspect of why Turkish started becoming written down. So we take Turkish, the earliest examples, the written examples of Turkish, we, we see in the early 14th century. And we, we think that the, perhaps the earliest uh, example specimen can be, might, might be Yunus Emre, the poetry of uh, uh, perhaps the most popular Turkish Sufi mystic of all time. So one reason, as I said, was this, um, this legitimation of this new power. Another reason was the um, the Islamization of these rural populations, of these rural Turkish populations, which was related to Sufism. So, as like as in many places in the in in the Islamic world, in in Central Asia, for instance, a lot of these Turkmen tribes, their introduction to Islam was through these wandering dervishes or Sufis, and. They, they also did not speak Arabic or Persian and they did not have access to the written sources of Islam. So their access to Islam was through these charismatic, nomadic and um, religious leaders who were, who for the literate uh, urban Muslims looked a lot like um, tribal leaders, a lot more like tribal leaders than they did uh, like uh, uh, as that they looked like scholars per se. 
And so that was another reason for the Sufis, on the other hand, to write in Turkish. And this is how um, a mode of Turkish emerged that we can call Old Anatolian Turkish, which was the earliest phase of the vernacularization of Turkish Anatolia. This period lasted until the rise of the Ottomans. As the Ottomans um, absorbed the other principalities before in mid to late 15th century, little by little, they became not a Beylik, not a principality, but a, an empire, which then led, of course, to Turkish becoming the language of an empire. Um, and that process, of course, made Turkish, uh, uh, radically changed Turkish, we can say, because it had to become a language of instruction, a written language of its own proper tradition uh, on par with perhaps Arabic and Persian. Um, so in this process, Turkish, the old Anatolian Turkish, which was, which was, which had mostly Turkish, Turkic words with very little Persian and Arabic, little by little became Arabized and, uh, and Persianized. And when, when you come to the 16th century, you have this Turkish, which is considered still Turkish, but it's, it's, it's a, like, almost like a Creole language where you have the verbs which are in Turkish, which sometimes are the only indicators that the language itself, the verbs and the suffixes and some of the suffixes can be the only indicators that that language is Turkish. And what, so we can think of this as for Turkish first becoming a vernacular and then becoming a cosmopolitan vernacular. So a vernacular which has all of the qualities of the, uh, of the cosmopolitan language which it imitates. The, the, the Selçuk's so, uh, formed well, in 1077 is the beginning of the Selçuk's of Rum and these particular early Muslim ruled Turkic states that are in this very, I suppose, diverse, human landscape, isn't it, that had been the, the, the Byzantine Empire with these many Christian and indeed Armenian populations as well. Yes, but anyway, do go on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is a great point. And uh, to add to that, we can we can think of English in the same manner too, right? Because in late medieval uh, uh, Europe, the same situation is true for English as well, where it is becoming vernacular, uh, and we have all these authors who say, well, English is not adequate in, um, to, to express these highly literate discourses and it's not adequate to become a language of literature and learning. And, and, and the authors who do write in those languages then have to um, prove that that language is adequate the way Dante had to prove that, that Italian was adequate. And so, uh, so in English, we have maybe the most extraordinary example of a language becoming a vernacular and then moving from a vernacular to the, the the, the world language, um, uh, the, the cosmopolitan of our time. What you've actually talked about there, Zainab, is actually something that happens, of course, as you know better than I do, with so many other languages of the Islamic world, isn't it? That, that process by which written language of, sorry, spoken languages of low status gradually then start to model themselves, at least their literary expression, uh, their written form by taking the Arabic alphabet or an extended version of it, borrowing lots of vocabulary from Arabic and often borrowing particular genres from Arabic 
And then suddenly these vernacular languages, these rustic languages become respectable. It happens first with Persian, doesn't it? And then in roughly the same time, it starts to happen with languages in Anatolia, Turkic languages, and also with languages in North India. And then a little bit later, it'll happen in Southeast Asia with languages like Malay, or, or indeed what becomes called Jawi, Arabic script Malay. And, and, and, and, and, and this is something, again, that, that we see also, in a sense, happening in Europe at the same time, isn't it? This is the period when the Romance languages start to be written down after centuries or the best part of a millennium of the domination of, of Latin. And as you were talking, I was thinking actually of, of Dante, you know, who's, who's really contemporary with many of the figures you're looking at, a few hundred miles to the west. And of course, then we have written then in, in the, uh, the Commedia, in the Divine Comedy, of course, the extraordinary work of, of extreme theological sophistication of Thomas Aquinas's theology in the kind of uh, um, romance language, the popular spoken Italian of Florence that ordinary people could understand. So when we, we're talking about Islam and Anatolia, but we're actually talking about a, a process, vernacularization. And as you said, a vernacular then becomes respectable language of state, a cosmopolitan language, the language of Italy, the language of the Ottoman Empire, the language of the Renaissance, the language of, of, of, of many great uh, Ottoman sultans and poets. And this is a, a more general process. It's not unique to, to Islam, is it? But we are here to talk about Islam. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that is a great point. And uh, to add to that, we can we can think of English in the same manner too, right? Because in late medieval uh, Europe, the same situation is true for English as well, where it is becoming vernacular, right? And we have all these authors who say, well, English is not adequate in, um, to, to express these highly literate discourses and it's not adequate to become a language of literature and learning. And, and, and the authors who do write in those languages then have to um, prove that that language is adequate the way Dante had to prove that, that Italian was adequate. And so, uh, so in English, we have maybe the most extraordinary example of a language becoming a vernacular and then moving from a vernacular to the, the the, the world language, uh, uh, the, the per cosmopolitan of our time. That's right, actually, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to be parochial and bring up English, but I also was, as well as Dante, there's me trying to be cosmopolitan, but, but as well as Dante, I was actually thinking of uh, the vision of Piers the Plowman, which is from the bit of England that I'm from, in fact. And that, of course, is, uh, you know, another sort of spiritual classic as well, which is in a, a much more kind of, you know, rustic form of English, I guess, or much more vernacular form of English than than Chaucer around the same time is importing from, from Italy, trying to bring in these more, more cosmopolitan kind of literary forms and rhymes. Yeah, but we've got to get back to Anatolia, I guess, and that's what's the exciting stuff we're talking about today. So let's, let's, let's look at a specific example then of, of a vernacular Islamic tradition, of a vernacular Turkic tradition in action. And let's look at the extraordinary, fascinating figure of the wandering dervish, the wandering Sufi, one of these kind of wandering teachers who are hanging out with tribesmen and others, as you've mentioned. And this is the, the, the Sufi, the dervish, Kaigusus Abdal. So can you tell us who was Kaigusus? What were his teachings? And moreover, how did he go about teaching them? Kaigusus 
Mrs. Abdal is a very interesting figure because um, he has an, ext an extraordinary legacy, a unique legacy, but was also eclipsed by subsequent authors and subsequent people in his tradition. So um, I have to, with, with Kaigusus Abdal, I have to start by translating his name. <laughs> Kaigusus means, uh, it's again, very vernacular, means um, carefree. So someone who doesn't have any cares. And then Abdal, the word Abdal, it, it started as a, a type of saint in the spiritual hierarchy of, uh, in, but the, the, the term itself, but it changed over time to denote a type of dervish. So when we're talking about, so to start with Kaigusus Abdal, I want to give a little bit of a context um, about who the Abdals were and who dervishes were, um, because this is very interesting. So. Um, from the maybe the late 11th late 12th century um, uh, to up to the 15th century, we had this flourishing of these dervish groups in the Islamic realms, who were actually, if you think about um, their um, their worldviews and their understandings of religion, were Sufis, but were very. Um, strict about not calling themselves that because for them the word Sufi denoted something that later became the word Sufu in, in Turkey became Turkified into the word Sufu which is someone who only only understands the the the, the practical and the sur aspect the surface of religion who doesn't have an internalized understanding of religiosity itself which would, we would think would be the opposite of what maybe the Sufis saw themselves to be. But this comes from the, the, the, this political aspect of the institutionalization of Sufism, where Sufism gradually became uh, tightly linked with political power and, and physical wealth, this worldly wealth. So it became this worldly. Um, and this, this was a reactionary movement. And the Abdals of Rum, by the way, the word Rum means Anatolia, and it's, it's very interesting because it also means Rome, <laughs> Rome, Rome, and it's because of the Byzantine, right, um, uh, past of uh, Anatolia, and it shows you that Anatolia became, is a very late comer to the Islamic name because that's the, it was still called Rome throughout, uh, until the end of the Republican period until the beginning of the Republican period. Now, uh, the, the Abdals of Rum, so the Anatolian Abdals, were one of these groups. And their defining characteristic was that they produced, they were, or they spoke Turkish, the Turkish vernacular, and some of them wrote in Turkish. Now, the most, I think, among all of the interesting qualities of Kaigusus Abdal, I, I would probably put forth the fact that he wrote period that he wrote <laughs> because these wandering dervishes there were there were a lot of them and they had all these rights that you know these heresiographies speak like you know um very strongly about it and and protest their um their version of islam which they considered to be a, a diversion and an and antinomianism now he actually not only wrote poetry and, and prose works, but he was a prolific author. Now, our first question is, 
how is it possible in a, com in a completely oral environment because um, the Turkmen tribes that, uh, that he was uh, among, they, they didn't know how to read and write. So if he wrote, who did he write for? That is a problematic. Now, um, some, of the in, um, some of the clues to answering this question actually lie in his legends, in, in his hagiography, because he, in, his, in his hagiography, he, he uh, is depicted as the son of a prince not maybe the highest prince in the principality, but one of the princes. And on a side note, um, he lived, we think he lived late 14th to early 15th century. So that was, he, that was still um, before the rise of the Ottomans. And um, he- and, and That's striking, isn't it? The time period you're, you're, you're placing him in. I mean, in the, what, let's say the, um, the 1300s to the mid 1400s or something, because this is a good century after the death of, of Rumi, the most famous of all Sufi poets, who had actually lived and been patronized in one of these Turkish, these Seljuk capital cities in Anatolia and Konya, but had written in Persian, written in the, the cosmopolitan language, hadn't it? So it's really striking that even a century later then, that we have someone who is writing as well, but also in, in the vernacular. Yes, that is very interesting. And another interesting aspect is, for instance, Rumi's son, Sultan Welad. You look at, you look at his Divan, and it's, it's in Persian, Arabic, Turkish, and Greek. So we think that a lot of these people, in, during that period, Greek was a, a major spoken language. And maybe uh, taking us back to those princes who needed Turkish to be written down, maybe they, they spoke Greek, but they didn't speak Arabic or Persian. So now, um, what happens is, of course, when we, when we come to a figure like Kaigusus, this is also an interesting poet point, and he wrote some of his poetry in Persian, but a very rudimentary Persian. And when we look at his work, we see that he actually modeled himself or his work on not the Arabic tradition, but the Persian tradition. So it is an instance also of of the of Persian as cosmopolitan language, and um, little by little, of course, what ha what he did was he took that tradition, which he also maybe some of some of it he acquired orally as well, not necessarily in written form. He took that tradition, and he sort of merged it with the oral idiom. And he, he's not, of course, the only person to do this. The Yunus Emre, the earliest Sufi mystic and, and the most popular Sufi mystic of all time, the Turkish Sufi mystic, um, who actually was a, a, a very fond of Rumi and who spoke highly of Rumi in, in his work, he also did this. He's the one who actually started this whole process of, of creating new genres that were sort of like a mixture between the, the learned the, and the highly literate models that they took and the, and, and the oral idioms that they needed to use to communicate it with the people they were talking to. So they were sort of bridging the gap, I would say. Um, and so another interesting aspect of Kaigus Abdal, of course, that he was a, is that he was a wandering dervish. Now this whole dervish movement also, the, uh, was in stark contrast to institutionalized Sufism in that they, they did not form orders. 
they had affiliations. So they were affiliated with several people, different people, and they, they could move from lodge to lodge from different areas in the Islamic world. And Kaigusus himself he traveled extensively in the Balkans and there are place names in the Balkans in his name and to our day. And he also traveled um, in, in the Middle East all the way to Egypt where he formed a lodge and, and, and most probably died there. And that his lodge there was active as a Bektashi lodge, as a lodge of the Bektashi order, uh, one of the most prominent Turkish orders of the Ottomans, uh, until this, this lodge was active until 1965. When we say lodge, it's one of the conventions, isn't it, for us as scholars? And uh, I wonder what ordinary people, our listeners, learners, uh, they know that I might make of that. And, and a, a lodge we might imagine as being, in some senses, the the, the, the medieval Muslim Sufi equivalent of a monastery in some senses, because, because the Sufis too, as you've already hinted at, but by this time, by the medieval period, the Sufis were often, many of them, the institutionalized ones, as you said, were extremely wealthy. They had a lot of land holdings, like the medieval Christian monastic orders. They had their, um, their libraries, what we call their lodges, the places where they might live, the, the others might reside some of the time, others might visit, they had their pilgrimage centers, their tombs, their libraries, their mosques, indeed their employees working on the lands, in, in, in, in, in, in, in, um, in, in, in perhaps in many cases large numbers of them. But as you said with Kaigus Abdal, he's one of the people that aren't doing that. In a sense, there's a bit like perhaps the Franciscans, isn't it, in, in, in some senses, but these are, are not organized or affiliated into a, an order or you know, the equivalent of a, a monastic order or indeed a Sufi order. So he's one of these wandering figures there. Yes, and um, interestingly, in his groups, so the Abdals and the Bektashis, which he was also affiliated with, little by little also become institutionalized at the hands of the Ottoman Empire, of the Ottoman Sultans, because these dervish groups, they're really hard to control. When once the, the, the, the once an, uh, a, a Sufi group becomes an order, then they have uh, they have order, so you can appoint people to them, and you can you can um, track their whereabouts, and you can track their financials, and so and you can use them uh, for political and ideological purposes. And this is something that happened in Anatolia. So with the um, imperialization of the Ottomans, in hand in hand, little by little, the Bektashis became, first they became affiliated with the, the Janissaries and little by little, they also became a, um, an, an order per se, and all of these different groups, which included not only the Abdas, but Kalenderis and Jamis and Persian speaking groups as well, they all sort of gradually um, were subsumed into the Bektashi order. Now with Kaigus's Abdal teachings though, this is, this is another unique aspect of him. Um, within this whole uh, institutionalization, he still remains in some aspect, sort of like, a marginal figure. First of all, he's a, he is a marginal figure who is at the same time the founder of Alevi Bektashi literature. Um, he's the first author who took this vernacularization started out by Yunus Emre. And then um, with this um, transfer of, of idioms, transfer between idioms, created a unique 
idiom and created a unique language and terminology, uh, which then, and, and, and generic, created unique generic conventions, which then lasted until our day. I will talk more about how it lasted, but now I want to start out with what the content of that was. Um, first of all, because um, some of it, of course, um, because, first of all, because these were still dervish groups, not institutionalized, what this meant was that individuals had their own doctrines and that, and there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of multiplicity. So uh, you could have two individuals within the same dervish group with, in a sense, radically different um, understandings of Sufism and Islam. And you can see that with Kaigusus. For example, uh, another Abdal, Sadiq Abdal, who comes up maybe 30, 40 years after him in the Balkans, who lived in the lodge of Sayyid Ali Sultan in, in, in the Balkans, uh, which was a, a very important, uh, again, Sufi center for the Bektashis and later Alevis. Uh, you look at, you compare them. And for Sadiq Abdal, you, the whole, his whole divan um, is basically focused on the veneration of saints. So uh, the veneration of um, Ali ibn Abi Talib, the uh, son-in-law and uh, cousin of, of the prophet, and the veneration of Haji Bektash, the so-called founder of the Bektashi order, the veneration of the 12 imams, um, a little like starting out from this period. Um, of course, the Shiitization in relation to Shiism is a whole other topic that is difficult to get into. Um, but it, Kaigusus Abdal, on the other hand, per, saw himself as a saint and denied believing in a hierarchy of sainthood and any world and, and um, saint worship. So we have someone who is against saint worship who calls himself a saint. Um, this, of course, is uh, the biggest paradox, I think. Um, and so, and among so a lot, some of his teachings, I would say, are, are quite radical, like this one. Uh, for instance, the reason why he didn't want saint worship is he believed, first of all, that uh, he in a, in a completely egalitarian society. So, each one of us is a saint, and we only we or we become a saint the moment we realize. That we're all we're already a saint. We're, that we've always been saints. And how do we come to this realization? We come to this realization by remembering um, uh, the pact between us and God, mentioned in the Quran, um, in the Surah of Araf, where um, where God asks uh, the so, the the uh, servants, "Am I not Lord your Lord?" And the servant says, "Yes, uh, we attest." So, um, and the, the servants are all of the, the souls of humans that will ever be created, aren't they? And Alastu become, am I not your Lord? And all, all humans bow down and say yes. Well, and of course, well, Satan doesn't, that's another story. But. Yes, so according to Kaigasus, um, the whole world is this one moment, the actual truth of the, the, the truth, which is, you know, uh, the word Hak is the perhaps the central part of his doctrine. The truth, which is invisible to the lay person, to the person who is not initiated into Sufism, the person who is not, has not gained 
think this status or is at least has not recognized anything. For this person, um, this, this, uh, the truth is inaccessible. But once it becomes accessible, you see that all beings are still in that moment of saying yes to am I not your Lord, your Lord. And that is their eternal abode, which they have never left. Now, once we put this out there, the, the conclusion is that, well, how do you believe in heaven and hell if you've never departed from heaven? And this, of course, uh, takes us to a sort of a cyclical understanding of time where um, we, the hierarchy, so as a, an individual moves up the spiritual path towards perfection, they come back to where they started. And that is the whole purpose of the spiritual path. Okay, this was that um, So I have a few poems actually uh, that I would like to read to you uh, to express this. this and, and of course I didn't say, but I did say he was prolific. He wrote, um, um, he wrote several mesnaries, which are long, um, long narrative poems. And he wrote prose works. He wrote works in, which alternate between prose and poetry, and he had a divan, um, which uh, for, uh, has a very important uh, significant historical significance as well, because it is uh, perhaps the earliest place uh, we see the uh, veneration of the 12 Imams in, in the Turkmen context, uh, which then sort of uh, also um, calls us to modify our timeline for the entrance of Shiite, Shiite doctrines into this realm. And he has this one work called Kitab Maklata, the Book of Prattle, where he pretends to speak rubbish for those who don't understand it, um, who don't understand what he's saying. And he, that whole work is about um, self-identification with Ali. So that is as, um, as extremist as he gets. I would say he has a, uh, has a spectrum of, of teachings that take... On one hand, he has poems where he talks about the importance of fasting and, um, and daily prayer, though very few. But, and then on the other hand, he has the divinization of Ali. And I personally have theorized this to, um, uh, in a way that, that takes this, the audience as, as, as center. So if he has this multiplicity of teachings, the logical conclusion is he was speaking to different people according to their own spiritual ranks. And that is why we have this multiplicity. And so you're giving it sense then that, I mean, he, yeah, spectrum is a word you've used. He has a really broad spectrum, doesn't he? He, he can, he, he's, he, he's, he's evidently literate or his works are being written down and, and, and, and they're constructed and artful, aren't they? I mean, as you said, he, he composes a Masnavi and a, Rumi's great masterwork, of course, is the Masnavi, isn't it? Which was, was famously called by the later uh, uh, Sufi Jami, the, the, the, the Quran in the Persian tongue. It's a very, it's, it's a formal constructed type of literary text. And then, as you've said, he has the, the Book of Prattle, these kind of uh, poems that are, that are, I suppose, perhaps a sort of a hyper vernacular form. But we're also getting the sense from what you've explained with his interpretation of, of, of, of the, 
the day of Am I Not or the day of Am I Not Your Lord from the Surat uh, Al-Arafa in the Quran, that there's an engagement with the Quranic text, there's an engagement with the revelation, but there's an interpretation of it, isn't there? And as you said, because there's, there's not, he's not part of a hierarchy that he has to say, this is the orthodox line I must follow. He's, he's, he's working in a, I suppose, a creative theological engagement of some of the actual profound existential implications of what that Quranic text is, without having to think, oh, that's already been decided by some more serious, some more senior mullah or some figure in a Sufi or other hierarchy. And he's explaining all of this complex stuff through the poems that you're going to give us some examples of now. Yes. And um, interestingly, a big debate is how much of this was Islam? Were these uh, authors Muslims? Or were these tribal, Turkic tribal leaders, representatives of Islam? And what he says is, this is the truth of Islam. This is his, his perspective is, I am, what I'm saying is the truth of Islam because I have direct access to the truth of Islam and I don't need any mediator for this direct access which is why he also denies saint worship. And he not only says, I don't need any mediator, but none of you need mediators. So my the way I have access to God, you also have access to God. You have access to not only God's attributes, uh, not, only, not, not the forms of, of, of creation, uh, not the attributes, but God's essence. And that is something that is very unique in a sense too. And of course, this whole theoretization is based on, in a sense, the school of Ibn Arabi. So the Wujudi school, the um, what we call uh, the oneness of being where, um, where all, all being is united and emanates from God and is a mirror image of, of God. But he also then takes this, again, highly literate discourse and makes it his own and makes a unique interpretation of it, which in hindsight, I, some of it, I'm sure Ibn Arabi would himself not approve. So Ibn Arabi is the, some of the Sheikh Al-Akbar, the greatest of masters, this Andalusian Sufi master from medieval Spain, 1165 to 1240. And he is the, the great theorist, isn't he, of, of, of, of, of Sufism, indeed in many ways of Islam altogether. But I'm just thinking, I mean, before we dive into, dive in deeply into the poems, I was really struck by what you're saying, Zainab, because it really gives a sense that, because by the, the time in which Kaigusu's Abdal is, is living, there is this saint worship, saint veneration, just, to, just as in medieval Catholicism, in medieval Islam, there are many saints, many shrines, many pilgrimages, and these are the Sufi masters. Rumi, by this period, is some is one of these saints that might well be worshipped. Perhaps one of the very figures that Kaigusus has in mind. Don't go to his tomb. Don't bow there, because Kaigusus is saying he can bring you directly to Haq, the truth, which of course is one of the the, the ninety nine names of, of of God in Islam. So he's. I'm really fascinated by this because he's at once, in some sense, is a Sufi, but he's an anti Sufi, at least in terms of what Sufism has become in that period. He's a popularist. He's a vernacular figure, but on the other hand. His teachings are really, as you were saying, at the core of Ibn Arabi's highly technical Arabic discourse. And indeed, some of the, the, the core um, lessons of the Quran, that the, there are no mediators between human between humankind and God. It's, it's extraordinary, yeah. And that he's doing in this, in this 
in this vernacular poetry? Okay, let's start with um, number one. I'm reading the Turkish first. Um, I am reading it in modern Turkish um, uh, pronunciation because I don't know how to pronounce 14th century Old Anatolian Turkish. So you'll have to bear with me on that. Evveli ahir her ne ki var pergal içinde bir nokta dur ancak. Pes hafure cazüftü taat kitabu peygam deftarü beratle. Beratle. So from the first to the last, all that exists in the universe is nothing but a dot. So what are fear and hope? Asceticism and worship, the book and the message. The notebook and the warrant. Fascinating. And this is, a, again, it's, a, it's very literary, isn't it? The metaphor about the dot is presumably the dot of a pen, isn't it? That makes makes the ink dot. The nukta, did you say? Was, I mean, so the, these metaphors are actually a written language in a sense. Yes. And also it could m- m- mean the saying attributed to Ali, I am the dot beneath the bed, which is uh, uh, the besmalad, which is the first uh, word of the Quran. So... The essence of the essence of the essence, so to speak. Okay, so another one about, okay. Okay, so now interesting. Another interesting example here is how is Kaigusus speaking through the mouth of God in a type of shat, which is um, um, again taken from Arabic literature uh, where um, where the um, godhood takes over, let's say, uh, um, in the man and the, the speaker is no longer the um, the the Kaigusus or, or the saint in question, but God Himself. So this is what He says: "Janul hakikat veli ki jandan münezzehem, namu nishanam, namu nishandan münezzehem. Benim masfum beyan olmaz, bana namu nishan olmaz, bana kimes ne can olmaz, veli veli ben cümleye canam." Ne odum ben ne yil oldum, ne can o aklı dil oldum, ne ağabam ben ne kil oldum, ben o sırram ki pinhanam. Of course, for speakers of Arabic and Persian, you can hear all those Arabic and Persian words, uh, which makes it even more interesting. Um, my soul is the truth, but I am free of the soul. I am names and signs. I am free of name and sign. My qualities cannot be expressed. No name or sign can point to me. No one can be a soul to me, but I am the soul of all. I am neither fire nor air. I have not become soul, intellect, or heart. I am neither water nor earth. I am that hidden secret. So he has a lot of these poems, a lot of poems where he speaks as God. Um, And this is actually taken up extensively by his followers. And it is still, so the shot after it dies down in the Arabic realm, lives on in Turkish up to our day where it is still, this type of speech is still part of not only Alevi poetry, which is sung during ritual, but also also part of, of, of folk songs, which have sort of moved from there all the way to the oral idiom. This is really extraordinary, isn't it? Because this, this, this shot that you're talking about, the, the early most famous exponent was Abu Yazid or Bezid Bistami, who's from the middle of what's now Iran, dies in 875, if I remember correctly. And, and he has many of these shat, these ecstatic utterances that are in a sense a, a post-Quranic revelation. I don't think anybody's really claiming they're the same status of the Quran, but they are meant to be divine revelation, aren't they? And that's really fascinating, as you say, that after they 
fade out in the Arabic tradition, they're still really prominent and alive and well in, in, in Turkish. So tell us some more. So uh, an example of the pre-eternal pact and eternal paradise. So paradise or afterlife being pre-eternity. Um, Jihanda henüz yoydi mansur. <laughs> we'll get to that after shot. This is this is a good poem to continue with. Jihanda henüz yoydi mansur. Tesbihüm idi demi enel hak. Genci ezelün haznesi gönlümde bulundu. Genç saklama hazneyi viraneyem yine. Ezel can iken vatonun meyhane genciydi. Bugün dahi kim uşrindi meyhaneyem yine. When Mansur did not exist in the world, the moment of I am God was my litany. The storehouse for the pre-eternal treasure was found in my heart. Again, I am a ruined storehouse to hide the secret treasure. In pre-eternity, when I was a soul, my homeland was the treasure of the tavern. Again, today, I am a drunkard in the tavern. Of course, this tavern, again, this is taken from the Persian uh, dis uh, discourse, right? The Persian uh, literary discourse on uh, on the wine and tavern and, and divine love um, with the, used with these tropes, which an, an important proponent in the Anatolian context was Rumi himself. And for Mansur, of course, who's the most famous person to utter the, the Shatahat, uh, and I am God and Al-Haq, uh, which he most likely did not say, um, became in Anatolian realm, one of the most typical aspects of each Alevi Bektashi poem. So it's lived on and the word, so and, and Alevis today, they name their children Mansur. Now, after all these doctrinal uh, poems, I wanna give you a glimpse of how he thought people, urban people, literate people, urban Sufis and scholars viewed him. Scholars, Sufis and urban ascetics. So people he considered were, could not understand the essence of Islam, but could only practice the outward observance of it, who in that sense, he sought to be hypocrites. So this whole, his whole social discourse is focused on hypocrisy. Um, so, ne sünneti bilir, ne kat'a, ne farzı, ne deli bilir, ne ayet demişler. They say he knows neither the sunnah nor the fard. He has absolutely no knowledge of any proof or verse. Daim esrariyir, yukırkar sakalın. Görün bu dehriyi bid'at demişler. They say he constantly eats hemp. He cuts off his beard. Um, see this materialist innovator. So basically he's as he is consciously not abiding by the sunnah and not abiding by the sunnah is a political position which does not make him less Muslim or in fact by the very truthfulness of it by the very, by its very opposition to hypocrisy becomes the truth of Islam. <laughs> Hypocrisy, of course, being one of the, or the the opposition to hypocrisy being one of the key moral themes of the Quran, isn't it? So, so this is one of the again extraordinary subtle dimensions, I think, of the, of a poem like this, that that he's saying, well, I'm not following what what people are saying should be the outward teachings of the Quran, the Sunnah, etc. But in doing so, he's actually following then the spirit of the Quran by not indulging in in hypocrisy. Um, yes, and he says something very similar to this. Um, he says, Kaygusuz abdalı her kim ki gördü muhibbü Ahmedi Haydar demişler. Whoever sees Kaygusuz abdal says, 
This is a lover of Muhammed and Ali. İnkar ettiğini ikrara gelmiş, veli ikrarına inkar demişler. He has come to earth to avow what he had denied. Yet they have mistaken his avowal for denial. So the, what, again, this is uh, this idea of the face of, of religion not being the same as its internal meaning. So this discrepancy between the face of religion and it's the meaning of religion. For him, um, the face of religion doesn't count for anything. The meaning is all that exists, right? So, and he sees the other. So he sees the urban Sufi as the complete opposite, where religion has become the face of religion and the meaning isn't there. So, and because of this radical uh, difference, his avowal looks like denial and the denial of the others look like avowal. And all you can do, the only way you can understand or you, the only way you can identify truth then is to access truth in your own heart in your own um, uh, faculty of love, which will give you direct access to God, hence giving you direct access to the truth itself. Then of course, this takes this uh, relates him to uh, the doctrine of love, um, which started by, uh, which was, you know, founded by, um, or well, it has a long past, but um, important figures are, are um, starting with, uh, Ahmed Ghazali, and another important figure would be Rumi himself, who was the, uh, the, the most famous proponent of the doctrine of love. And he, so he's again continuing that whole um, tradition that he takes from Yunus Emre himself. So as you've said, the poetry of Kaigus's Abdal is still very widely read today. It's very alive, it's, it, it, it's alive, well recited and extremely important. And, and among the, the people who still keep Kaigus's Abdallah's teachings and poetry alive are a, a group of people called the Alevids. Now, the Alevids are followers of, we might say, an Islamic tradition. They're the precise, uh, let's say, parameters of their relationship to Islam is, is contested by, uh, by, by Muslims, indeed by the Alevids themselves. But they constitute around 15 to 20% of the population of Turkey, and their religious tradition is evidently a rich and important one within the Middle Eastern context. So since they're keeping alive the, the tradition and the teachings of Kaigusas to this day, can you perhaps tell us then, what, what is the legacy of this vernacular Islam, the legacy of Kaigusas Abdal, and indeed its relationship with Alevism today, both in Turkey itself and indeed with the larger Turkish and Kurdish diaspora? What happened, so, what this, so this legacy is, in a sense, the legacy of the plurality of Islam, the plurality of Anatolia, not just in the Anatolian context, but also we can think of this uh, in, in the larger context of Islam, modern Islam as being standardized and, fun and uh, the fundamentalist perspectives or the literalist perspective, perspectives, or taking us to our back, back, uh, earlier discussion, the formal perspectives of Islam, the face of Islam, uh, um, taking on greater value. And uh, so this is uh, together with modernity, of course, is this, the plurality of Islam in, uh, in much of uh, the Islamic world was also lost. So, and of course, this is very much related to the, the the, the fall, uh, uh, the, the decline of Sufism too, right? So we have this tradition here in a country where Sufism has was completely abolished, 
by the state where uh, the what where wherever lived as an underground movement actually became something other than medieval Sufism became a lot closer to a literalist understandings of Islam and, and more like um, secret uh, secret movements. And within this whole context, the Alevis, who definitely do not think of themselves as, as Sufis, became the only actual vibrant area in modern Turkey where Sufism as, as um, spiritual uh, spirituality um, in action, Sufism as the meaning taking taking precedence is still alive. So it, it is um, it, it is the one I, I would say it, it is not um, so I, for uh, so Alevism in a sense represents uh, an Alevis, Kurd, both Kurdish and, and Turkish Alevis represent um, this idea of an Islam which can be both universal and local at the same time, can be both vernacular and cosmopolitan at the same time without losing anything of itself, without losing anything of its essence. And Islam, which is not, uh, which is not the Islam of just the, the, um, uh, the Sunnah and the Quran, an Islam which is not the Islam of just the scholars, but of the common people, of the way they lived and practiced. You've taken us through so many of the implications and the really profound possibilities of how we might use the writings of a medieval wandering dervish to address some of the key issues that shape Islam, its importance in Turkey, and indeed what Islam and Islams might be in the medieval world as much as today. Zeynep Otto Uslu, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you very much. This was a very, this was a great pleasure.